Welcome to Series 2 of Assembly Point, a monthly podcast by the Fire Protection Association. Following a successful first series, Assembly Point provides a collective space in which industry leaders can explore the most pressing issues in fire safety and share expert information and advice. Please be aware that the views expressed by guests in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the FBA. We hope you enjoy this episode of Assembly Point. Hi, welcome to the Fire Protection Assembly Point podcast. I'm Dale Kinnersley, Principal Consultant at the Fire Protection Association, and today I'm joined by Adrian Kay, UK Head of Technical Compliance and Quality for Fire Suppression at Johnson Controls, Alan Crichton, Design Course Training Facilitator and Technical Committee Chairman at BAFSA, and Stuart Lloyd, who's the Global Practice Leader of Fire Protection at Zurich. Uh, thank you all for taking the time to join me today to discuss recently updated new and proposed water-based suppression standards. I'm pleased to, that you could participate in today's podcast, given your areas of expertise. So without further ado, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. So I'd like to start by thinking about uh, British Standard 9251, the recent 2021 issue for residential sprinkler systems. Adrian and Alan, how do you think this new standard has impacted the industry? Adrian, I'll come to you first. Okay, it's obviously a more comprehensive document than its predecessors. Uh, the introduction of the CAT 4 for buildings over 18 metres high and the associated added robustness of the water supplies is, is an obvious advantage. Just some other things, I think some more clarity would have been useful within those standards around the non-residential occupancies, non-residential areas in more-to-use occupancies, particularly where it's associated with the uh, the ordinary hazard hybrid criteria. Yeah. And another area where I think it would have benefited from more detail is protection of the so-called sterile areas in buildings, so the communal areas and the corridors. I think we all probably know that uh, when the fire strategy was written, those areas which are classed as sterile would be thought to remain as sterile. But when those residents move in, I think it's probably fair to say that those, those areas may be subject to storage and the added fire risk that, that goes with that. But, but as a contractor, I would say we what we are well we're unsure if it's due to covid or due to perhaps consultants and specifiers not knowing there's been a change in the standards we continue to see specifications sent to us that reference the 2014 standards now it may well be that that the the projects which were mothballed due to covid are now coming back to life hence the reference to 2014 but you know our belief is that you know, anything that should come through now should be referenced in the 2021 standard. So the impact it had upon us as a contractor, I would say at the moment is negligible until everyone concerned, you know, and is engaged in a product in, in a project takes into account that it, the 2021 version is the current standard and 2014 has been withdrawn. Then until then, I'm, I really can't say that, uh, you know, the standard, there has been a massive impact you know, with the introduction of this standard. Yeah, obviously we discussed, well, you, you mentioned in there the fact that it's now moving into into commercial areas. That That's obviously a, an area for concern for insurers, which will come on to Stuart in, in, shortly. But Alan, how has this impacted yourself and how do you think the new standards has impacted the industry? Well, I've done quite a bit of work on this, basically. Um, and obviously I work a lot with the third party accreditation bodies uh, through the training courses that we have running 
and uh, what we're finding, the feedback is that historical residential and domestic uh, installation companies don't really understand the commercial market. Okay, so when it comes to actually protecting the commercial side, they're actually just designing it as if it was a residential job. So you're getting retail with plastic pipe spaced at 25 square metres and calculated in four heads, which is not right because if you actually look at table four, it says it all has to be spaced to BS EN12845. So the biggest the biggest challenge is going to be to train these people in that. So, um, you know, and what, what we've tried to do is, well, as part of my, my own company, we've tried to actually raise the bar when it comes to training. Now, obviously, we've just actually had approval on our residential domestic course from the SQA. Uh, we now have a, a national accredited uh, training course, um, which gives me a, an, SC, an SQCF level 7 accreditation, which is a 3-4 uh, in the English. Well, so equivalent to A level standard England, yeah, yeah, quality level standard, um, and uh, that one actually covers UK, Ireland, and also Malta. Believe it or not, because they use the British standard. So, um, but we've tried to get to a point where there is a qualification out there for residential, and that's for twenty twenty one. Not only that, what we've then also done was created a new training course, uh, especially geared towards the table four in the book, which is dealing with, sorry, dealing with commercial occupancies, um, which is listed in table four, and actually getting in a wee bit into depth into where it all comes from in BSEN 12845. So they've got a good knowledge of the commercial aspect of it because we teach them some of the BS 9251. Now we've only run one of the courses, which literally just finished an hour ago, but we've ironed out a lot of the problems and now what we're going to do is we're going to put that towards uh, the SQA and that's also going to be given a level 7 a qualification. So there's going to be two national awards out there for uh, the new rules. So the impact that it's had on the industry so far from listening to both of you is the fact that a new standard has come in and we need we need basically people to be trained up and actually understand the use of it, the, the, the limitations of it, the expectations from it and also that the specifiers of systems at this moment in time aren't specifying it, they're obviously pulling mothball projects out uh, and, and still specifying a, a predated predated 2014 standard. So we need the industry to embrace it a little bit. And obviously with this embracing it, it's obviously got to come with training and we've got to get the right people and on the right courses to, to, to understand it. So if, I, if we can move on, can we talk a bit more area of concern with this standard? Stuart, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts here on, on this new 9251 standard. Thanks, Dale. Um... Yeah, I think, so for many years, um, the insurance industry has been quite immune to residential sprinkler standards because realised property insurance, you know, we offer property insurance. Uh, from a, a residential sprinkler point of view, I know some people would use the term life safety, but essentially these kind of systems are designed to hold a fire for a limited amount of time to enable escape from a fire. And we absolutely support that, we encourage it, and, um, you know, we also applaud any kind of advancing standards and, and uh, technology that does support that. We've on a few years, uh, we've had things like Grenfell and then, you know, recently we've had kind of COVID and we've kind of had this perfect storm of 
increased demand for sprinkler systems in residential properties and a change in the standards and also a change really in how people live these days. You know, we, we kind of heard for years that people were moving towards city centres. Um, you know, they were moving into these high-rise blocks. Most of them had some kind of uh, small supermarket or restaurants, takeaways on the ground floor kind of thing. So there was a whole lifestyle change as well at the same time. Um, not really sure how that's going to go on going forward with everybody working from home these days. I wonder whether there's going to be an exodus out of town. But this has kind of created a perfect storm. There's been a demand. Um, there's been a need for training. And we applaud you know, the levels of training that's being done out there. But it can't keep pace, can it? And that's really what we're seeing at the moment. And coupled with that, we have been sure a lot of local authorities. They've installed some of these systems. And then they've asked us, how do you look at this from an insurer's point of view? And then also, we've also had a lot of property owners, people who buy real estate, and they build these buildings. And they're looking for us saying, we've put a sprinkler system in there. Don't insurance companies look at these favorably and offer preferential terms or discounts kind of thing? And the challenge has been generally with the original residential tax systems that we didn't do because they never covered all the areas. You know, they never covered like what as Adrian was saying, the sterile areas, you know, some of the staircases, the corridors, these kind of things. And yeah, storage does end up there. And even these days, even if people charge mobile scooters as well. So, you know, we kind of see all that sort of stuff going on. But it never covered things like small rooms and bathrooms. And, you know, if you ask the fire service, they can give you a long list of fires that have started in bathrooms with tea lights around the baths and stuff like that. So that's kind of had limitations. And, and secondary to that, the length of the water supply, I know some, in some cases you could kind of claim it's um, an infinite kind of thing. But when we look at a commercial sprinkler system, there's a lot of robust guidelines within the sprinkler rules and beyond the sprinkler rules about power supplies to pumps to make sure that they're there for uh, even in the event of a fire that they're not switched off easily and actually the water supply duration can support not only people escaping from the building in the first 15 minutes to half an hour but also the prolonged duration where the fire service turn up make their risk assessment and then actually go on to make a, a you know a, a final extinguishment effort kind of thing quite often by the time they turn up based on the design of residential sprinkler systems that time is usually expired there may or may not still be water there and it might be struggling and so just off the same level so i kind of get where the new standard has gone but actually that's increased some concern to us because we're now seeing people approach us with residential systems as alan has described inside the retail occupancies and offices and stuff like this and yeah we're, we're kind of frightened by some of the systems that we've seen because that's where we're witnessing that the training has not kept pace and um, yeah big concern i mean I know we're making efforts through the Fire Protection Association to kind of produce guidance of how to protect a multi-use building, and that is something we really do need. But the definitions around some of the um, commercial space and car parks as well, I, I'm kind of frightened about the guidance not being as clear as it could be, and maybe the protection scheme not as robust as what people actually believe they're installing yeah. or buying. Well, we mentioned this in, in meetings that we've had, obviously, through Risk Authority, the fact that the specification for the system should be based on the highest risk uh, and not just because it's got residential parts of the building it should be a residential standard that now allows a certain element of uh, commercial area but that's uh, that's the problem we've got so obviously over just to just to wrap up the uh, the 9251 training uh, expectation from an insurer's perspective um, and appreciating the limitations of what the residential system would be and, and as to whether then that should then be 
looking more commercial and industrial. So thank, thanks, thanks for sharing your thoughts on, the, on that. On that. Uh, if we could now move on to water mist, as we know that uh, water mist systems are highly effective. Uh, they must be designed with the exact environment in mind. Uh, we currently have three standards. So we have the uh, BS8458, which is a residential and domestic water mist system, which is what the FPA accredited to test to. Um, we have BS8489 part one, which is the commercial and industrial. So we've got two of our own British standards. And recently we've had the introduction of BSEN14972, uh, which is a European water mist standard. How that's going to sit with regards to um, our current British standards, as we know, a European standard takes precedence over a British standard, but um, we've got three standards currently available on the market. I know the, the, the new European one is a part of a suite of documents that we need to we need to embrace and not all of those have been published. So we may not be looking at using that at this moment in time. Well, Adrian Stewart, uh, which would you say is the most used standard and uh, what training is being carried out for water mist from, from your point? If you could come to you first, please, Adrian. Uh, from a contractor's perspective, I would definitely confirm that the most common standard we, we currently experience and encounter is uh, 8489-1, definitely, because that encompasses the majority of the risks that us as a contractor will come across from an industrial and commercial perspective. Training-wise, we're finding that the majority of training is provided by the component manufacturers. It's, it's a niche industry, isn't it? It's specialised. So that's where we're finding the majority of, of, of training sessions are coming from is from the from the manufacturers. Great, and Stuart, what would you say on with regards to water? I know yourself as Zurich your Insurance, you've got your own thoughts and, and, and expectations from uh, from uh, water mist, and obviously through risk authority, we we've got concerns and we've raised questionnaires about it. But how do you, as a company, look at water mist systems? And this, obviously, we have three standards at this moment in time. Yeah. Um... The, the stuff like the domestic type systems, it kind of aligns with 9251. In some respects, we kind of ignore that aspect. The, the 8489-1 and the, one, you know, the 14972, we see a lot of 14972. That seems to be what gets referred to me more often than not. But I mean, my role is more European global kind of thing, not, not really confined to the UK. So that might reflect the difference uh, between Adrian and myself. I have a lot of concerns with automatic systems. I mean, it, it, it's like in one way, they, they kind of tell you that it's more effective because it's small droplets. It, you know, it, it kind of quenches the fire and everything else. That's true on extinguishing systems where you have a high heat output fire. Uh, it turns to steam. It does as they say. But then they try and tell you that it works the same way in a residential type occupancy or a, a low hazard occupancy, like a you know a, a school or somewhere like this kind of thing. And actually, it works in a completely different manner. It, it works very similar to a sprinkler with pre-wetting and what have you. And when you look at the discharge from this, these systems, they're usually around about two to three millimeters per minute. And data tells us that you really need five millimeters per minute to be effective control. I mean, the, the BRE proved that after they did some in the region of 4950 tests with multiple waterless manufacturers to try and achieve that. So at that point, we got very much concerned. Um, we then started to get complaints from customers who had some of these systems installed that were failing, they were leaking and everything else. Uh, and we came to light from other investigations too that many of the water mist nozzles actually have dynamic O-rings in them, which were banned from sprinklers in the early 1990s. So we we see concerns where you know we we as Zurich we have this uh, recognised technology methodology. It's not Zurich trademarked. It's it's kind of common sense. You talk about 
uh, a reputable, recognised testing laboratory that's qualified to do the, 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 the test, a suitable test protocol that's got to represent the risk being um, protected or proposed to be protected, manufacturers' guidelines that will kind of tell you how to achieve what they did in the test lab as a proven success, uh, and then some kind of recognised standard. And you know, the recognised standard you could kind of say NFPA 750 or 14972 may meet that, but it really falls down on all the other areas because we find that either the components are not listed or the system's not been tested appropriately. And we've even seen cases where people have tried to claim it was tested BRE. When I say BRE, uh, they were actually tested at the BRE in a private test and not necessarily by the BRE. And, you know, you could argue misrepresentation, but some people can't differentiate between the two. And we've seen people with listed components putting forward approved systems. And we've kind of taken the view that based on everything, we just do not accept closed head water systems for property protection because we don't even recognize light hazard sprinkler systems for property protection. It doesn't discharge enough water. We kind of put these in the same area as that. Extinguishing systems, completely different view. If we've, if we've got a challenge like an industrial oil cooker or an engine test bed, something like this, water mist will be our first choice, but it must be supported by the relevant test data and it must use the same listed equipment that was used in that test and meet all the criteria so we expect to get the same results. Yep. Well, that's what 70, the, the, the new uh, 14972 standard does. It, it, it's a suite of documents, isn't it, from 1 to 17, with 1 being the, the design manual uh, and parts 2 to 17 are the test protocols. And without, without having um, them all published uh, and without having the test protocol approved and published, then obviously we shouldn't be using that as a standard at this moment in time, as you say, until there's a test protocol that's that's relative to the risk that you're protecting. So in terms of, you know, um, risks, it's a, it, it is a very, very effective functioning uh, suppression system. It's backed by very good standards, test protocols, but it's still a little bit relatively new in comparison to sprinkler systems. But uh, you did mention in there with regards to the, uh, the components and the designers, Stuart, or you mentioned the components, not necessarily the designers, but as, a, as an insurer, would you be looking at companies that are providing uh, water mist, would you be looking for them to use approved products and have their designers approved? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, you know, like any insurance company, we kind of rely on good, recognised, published standards, and and they all kind of point towards using you know products that have been listed, but not only listed, but listed for their intended use. You wouldn't take a product from something else and use it for something different and expect a good result. But, but actually, just going back a little bit there, Dale, as well, with, with the test protocols, some of those test protocols have got two or three options that are actually com conflicting and competing. You know, I'm kind of concerned about the, the validity of some of those test protocols. You know, they've been developed by some manufacturers to make sure that the, that the test is successful, uh, but they're not always representative of the risk that we see in real life. That is really where the challenge comes to. But you also talk about... Um, contractors and, and designers and stuff like this. Um, you know, when we kind of think of sprinkler systems, we think of making sure that a company is, is kind of uh, supervised or you know, certified by uh, the, L, you know, the LPCB or FIRAS or um, I, IFC, uh, the other one. We, we kind of expect that it would be supervised or done by that. The, their schemes are quite robust for sprinkler systems, quite clear of how they manage that. Uh, we have seen some schemes for autonomous contractors where it's, uh, have you been on a training course? Do you have the manufacturer's guidelines? Yes, yes. 
but you can go and design what you like and certify it yourself, it'll be okay. And we don't consider that to be a suitable kind of program for that monitoring control. So, no. yeah, concerned across the board really with that. And if I could just quickly come back to you, Adrian, with, with regards as a, as a contractor, from your contractor's point of view, you actually design and install water mist systems. So I assume, like, I know for a fact that uh, Tyco products do their own um, Aquamist ULF. Yeah. Uh, I assume your designers are obviously trained in that in that discipline and obviously certified to that standard. That's correct, Dale. Yeah, we, we we pride ourselves on ensuring compliance. That's all we can do. We've got our foot in both camps as a as a contractor, so sprinklers and water mist. So we've got no axe to grind with with either technology, really. You know, whichever application fits best, then that's the that's the way we look at it. Great, great. So we've discussed obviously both sprinklers and and water mist uh, suppression systems independently. So we talked about nine two five one. We've talked about the three water mist standards. If you could think about one versus the other. And how do they compare? Obviously, I've recently written an article between the two and comparisons, uh, but it'd be interesting to know your thoughts. Adrian, what's your opinion with regards to comparison of a water mist system and a sprinkler system? In my view, it's very difficult to, to compare the two because, the, you know, okay, they use water, both technologies do, but, you know, they're not equivalent. They, they really, really aren't. Each, each has its advantages, each has its disadvantages, and I think those have been well documented by, by a number of people, and we're all familiar with, with, you know, with, with what is considered an advantage and what is a disadvantage. Um, it is a relatively new technology, as you say, when compared, well, to sprinklers. Historically, sprinklers, we have the data, you know, the, the fire save data and the operational data to back, back up those statistics. We've not got quite. We've not quite got that at water mist level yet, have we? I think we're we're all in agreement with that. Question for everybody then: Obviously, automatic fire sprinklers are obviously known to be an effective way of controlling spread of fire. I'd be interested to know what you all uh, think about the new proposed EN twelve eight four five standard. So the first one that's been obviously um, published for public comment came out earlier in this year. Well, it actually came out at the end of twenty twenty one. Uh, which was EN12845 Part 1. We're very, very close to EN12845 Part 2. Um, how will this e impact on each of you? So, Alan, obviously from, from BAFSA's point of view and your training point of view, how will this impact on yourself? Right, we have to start. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, basically, um, I think I think there's good, there's good points to the new standard, uh, but there's also not so good points to the new standard. I think they've kind of they've went down the road to FM quite a bit with the, the occupancies, which isn't a bad thing, um, you know. So it kind of helps you get the right occupancy, which helps you get to the right density and area of operation. Um, I think it was good that they separated out the ESFR um, and CMSA. It makes it clearer because there wasn't enough there wasn't enough detail in the technical building, so there's it needed it needed to be separated out. Um, the one thing that we probably should talk about is uh, how it's going to affect yes. the third party schemes because they're going to need to be rewritten quite a bit uh, because level one, two and three companies who don't necessarily have the expertise in doing full hydraulic calculations are going to really struggle and potentially put some of them out of business, you know, so um, there has to be re that has to be rewritten, and that falls in nicely with it. Obviously, there's there's some work getting done, um, and a kind of subcommittee looking at the new NXD for pre-calculated yeah. systems to try and come in line with Table Nine of the new 
of the new standard, you know. So um, training-wise, uh, yeah, I think um, there's a lot of training needed to be done on it. Um, we're going to need to start looking at that shortly. Uh, so, because it's not, it's not a two-minute job rewriting a training course. Well, it's course not a standard that. that's just been uh, uh, simply modified. It's, it, it's no, a complete rewrite. Yeah, no, it's not. It it's a brand new standard. Uh, let's, let's, let's not be about it. It's a brand, brand new standard. Yeah, so. So, so you're talking about training and then potentially requalification of all the okay. engineers in the UK. Adrian, how do you think this is going to impact on yourself? Obviously, uh, I think Alan's alluded to the fact that obviously training is a big is a big issue and, uh, and it's such a different standard from what we currently know as the norm now. Um, as a contractor, how is this going to affect you? I'm in agreement with Alan. I mean, some of the changes looking at it, you know, are good, but I would say more. There's, there's more bad than good. You know, I think there's a hell of a lot of retrograde steps within those standards from from what I can see. I think the changes have been too radical. Instead of you say as a revision, it has been virtually a total rewrite. And training within the industry, you know, for for every aspect, design, you know, install, service and maintenance, etc. It's going to require a hell of a lot of work for everyone. Most definitely. Thank you, Adrian. And Stuart, obviously, being a committee member that was on uh, the development of this, I'm sorry to have to... <laughs> I don't that to you the finger. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. Obviously, sitting on the committee no. alongside you, we know that the changes are radical, as Adrian's just pointed out. Um, it would make a great sitcom uh, to anybody if it was a, if it was a <laughs> fly on the wall documentary. Yeah, in some ways... I'm kind of horrified by the approach that was taken from Europe. You know, I, I joined that committee maybe seven or eight years ago. It kind of shows you how long this kind of re revision has been in uh, in development kind of thing. The, the one thing that was kind of stated at the beginning of this process before I joined was that it would be evolution, not revolution. And it very quickly came to, let's throw away the old book and start from scratch. And the guys... It was actually some guys from the Netherlands who started off with the first introduction paragraphs and pages section. They said, do you want us to show track changes or do you just want to see the new text? And the comment came back, just show the new text. And that way you don't really get to see what's been dropped or changed and you don't really get to challenge stuff and you're trying to work from memory. And I'm not surprised, there's somewhere in the region of a thousand comments, uh, out of many thousands of comments perhaps, but it's, there was, was 600 pages of comments for a 300-page document, and you know, it was rejected by the UK and uh, and Germany and Sweden as well, kind of thing. And they're established sprinkler markets, kind of stuff. And it really, on the basis of this, you know, revolution, not evolution, kind of stuff. I think they've really missed taking people on the journey to to a better place, kind of thing. Well, I would kind of say in terms of a better place, things like the classification of goods categorization is a major improvement. We have four categories, four categories. They're now looking to make that five. That doesn't mean adding an additional one. They're looking at category three and four and splitting those into three, four, and five. And that way, it really does align with the way that the US uses their categorization with uh, cartoned or expanded, uh, cartoned, unexpanded, cartoned, exposed, you know, expo exposed plastics and unexposed, cartoned, not cartoned. And that way, you can actually take test, test data from the US and apply it uh, into a European standard much more easily because most of the testing is really kind of carried out over there. Yes. So it makes their test data valid and useful to use appropriately uh, in Europe kind of thing. So that, I think, was a, a huge um, advantage. The description for the occupancies, I think, has been really helpful. You know, many times in the past we've kind of seen people come along and look at, like, 
hospitals our schools and just gone, oh, the table, it's ordinary hazard one, and they blanket protect it. Yes. Ordinary hazard one, whereas you look at things like commercial kitchens, uh, storage areas, sports halls, um, laundries that, and, and things like this, and, you know, that you particularly find in hospitals and stuff and pharmaceutical stores and things like that. They're not ordinary hazard one uh, kind of thing. So this kind of guides the user to actually choose the right protection scheme for the right space within a, you know, a building complex, which is, which is really helpful. Then it started to shoot itself in the foot. It changed all the, um, all the identifiers for occupants. And instead of having light hazard, ordinary hazard and what have you, it changed this fire hazard classification, which was quite influenced by FM. But I don't see any real need to make the changes. They said they were simplifying it by combining some. So yeah, we've lost ordinary hazard two because that's now become ordinary hazard three and it's fire, fire hazard class two. Um, not great, kind of splitting hairs perhaps and stuff like that. But where this really, in my mind, has caused those most problems, and I think it's what Alan was alluding to, they added in a table um, for excessive ceiling heights, which was kind of taken from the information available to FM when they wrote uh, 3-26, uh, which said in non-storage occupancies that the fire challenge will need um, a larger density and larger droplets from bigger sprinklers. Um, I've kind of dug a bit deeper on that myself, and I know I was challenging it at the time. It does stack up for manufacturing locations and places we would call high hazard process, and, and places where you find storage that is beyond what the US would call miscellaneous or incidental storage. So once you go beyond your ordinary hazard storage limits and, and high ceilings, then it really is a problem. And, and, you know, I know there's a group working on this for the NFPA committee at the moment for the next edition for that. And they've kind of identified that for the things that we would call ordinary hazard one, two, maybe three, which is not their light hazard occupancy, it's kind of marginal. They can't say that it definitely does cause a problem. And, you know, I look at a shopping mall, I might see one kind of like cart that's selling mobile phone covers or something like that. It's an isolated fire load in the middle of nowhere. Equally, you might go to another shopping centre where there's a big display of motor vehicles and stuff like that. It's a slightly different challenge, but generally speaking, I think for your ordinary hazard three locations, your office atriums, your school atriums, um, shopping centre malls, this kind of stuff, I don't think that this really legitimately applies and I don't think there's the data to support it. But once you start getting into lofty buildings with manufacturing and processes, big challenge. And if they made that change, I maybe took out, you know, the limits for is it nine and a half and 13, 15 meters, something like that. If they made that change to the lower end of the classifications, FHC one and two, which is our ordinary hazard uh, uh, one and three, I kind of think we could just go back to pre-calc and we've got no problem. And that would really solve a lot of the challenges we've got. But um, yeah, I think the way they've approached it and the way it's been presented has been such drastically changed They've lost a lot of people and it's confused a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not surprised by Adrian's comments that they feel it's gone backward. It's hard to work out stuff and find things and, and it's hard. I kind of think we've challenged them, justify the change and they've, they've not really managed to do that sufficiently in my mind. The, the comments are going in. It's probably going to come back for a second, for second revision, uh, kind of public comment. Yeah. Um, We've got more opportunities, but we are pushing for change. I was going to say, it, the, the, the comments that you made earlier, I think uh, from the UK alone, we were over a 1,000, and Germany were the same, and, and obviously you and I sitting on the committee, there's 4,000 comments to go through, which which we know is going to take 
more than 12 months to do so whilst it's a new standard that we've had we've had uh, revision one to comment on there's still a lot of work to be done before it becomes a standard and and, and, and again when it does become a standard we're talking about a life safety standard as well so with regards from an insurance perspective property protection standards will need to be added onto that to mitigate insurers you know losses and, and payouts and, and, and premiums etc so there's a big change with regards to that so um thanks ever so much for that Stuart that insight's been uh, fantastic so uh, quickly move on Alan do you uh, see any uh, issues with regards to the new standards and the specifications of by uh, non-qualified sprinkler engineers as I would call them uh, consultants obviously a consultant picking up this specification I have concerns personally in, in respect that having read it and commented it on, on behalf of uh, the insurers uh, from for the fire protection association that you need to be a fire engineer to understand some of the uh, the technology and, and be able to apply it so i feel that um there's lots of get outs there's lots of uh, you can bring this in there's lots of uh, excuses where you can not meet the requirements of the standard within it so i fear personally for incorrect specifications how do you feel yes definitely i mean i'm still seeing specs with bs5306 part two in it um, so it's took them a long time to get their head around the new BSEN 12845. So to change that the way it's been changed, I think they'll really struggle, you know. Uh, but on the flip side, if you look at CDM regulations, the specialist should go back to them and tell them what it should be. So the, the sprinkler, the sprinkler companies have still got their bit to play in this. Yeah, so basically don't don't just accept a specification for a building or a fire strategy for a building is correct. Obviously, if you feel the need to challenge it, you should need, the, need, need to challenge it as a professional from the sprinkler industry. I agree with you on that. And a final question for you all, if I may, how would you describe the current trend in the industry for selecting the appropriate water-based standard? So we've got uh, positive and negative aspects with different technologies and how are these over being overcome? Stuart, if I come to you first. I'm kind of seeing that people are quoting a lot of EM12845 without the LPC technical bulletins. I mean, as the insurers, we kind of like that. I, I honestly feel that they're missing the trick by not engaging with insurers. And I, I do actually understand, you know, on a lot of occasions, they don't know who the insurer is, and it could be a speculative build and what have you. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunities where they can engage with the insurers, and we can kind of guide um, the contracts and the, and the customers and stuff. You know, we don't want to end up in a position like we have done many times where we're actually saying the systems have gone in and we've turned around to the customer and said you need to change it or we can't recognize it and this kind of stuff because then it then creates conflict between themselves and the contract it's not the contractor's fault um, you know it, we, we could help the customer determine what the specification can be so they can get consistent quotations and equally we can guide the contractor to putting in an installation that isn't going to get picked apart after the event uh, and everybody walks away happy and you know sometimes it doesn't always have to meet the standard sometimes it may have to exceed the standard it, it really is a risk-based approach um we, we look at the lpc rules as being a, a minimum design guide but we've got a level of tolerance sometimes it's a little less sometimes it's a bit more but that really depends on the risk profile it, it's one book it can't cover every kind of risk profile so um I'm seeing all kinds of things put forward. I just wish people would engage more with us yep. because we cannot so much do them. Thank you. And Adrian? Yeah, what Stuart says is music to my ears, really. And, and we've always try, tried to engage with the insurers. 
you know, any any insurance specification that we we receive and can work to, it's a bonus for us. It really, really is instead of second guessing. And that doesn't just go for commercial and industrial projects, but I think I touched on it earlier regarding 9251. That early engagement, you know, with with a contractor, you know, if that the fire engineer gets in touch with the contractor at an early stage, you know, it can save a whole lot of heartache further on down the line. Likewise goes for determining which is the best technology to apply, be it mist, be be conventional sprinklers. I think early engagement and communication from all parties really is the key. Yeah, and I think from the FPA and risk authorities' point of view, the insurers, one of the authorities having jurisdiction who's, who's, who's missed off most of the time, I think, you know, say, showing my age, when, uh, when, when we first designed a drawing, you couldn't even go into fabrication until the insurer had seen the drawings and approved it. Um, so they they really need to be engaged in, and, and everybody that's involved, all stakeholders, especially authorities having jurisdiction. Alan, last question to yourself is obviously the same one. You know what what uh, what's just you know what's the current trend for for yourselves from Baths or 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 are you pretty independent and you know or is it hazard or risk based? I think um, I think we're finding that that Waterman's companies are better salesmen when it comes to residential and domestic. Um, and just one point on the consultation and both of the standards, um, both of the sprinkler standards we've been talking about, there's a huge bit in consultation that says that you should uh, consult with bond control officer, fire brigade, water authority, insurance, blah, 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 blah. So the, the principal consultant should do all that before actually spitting out the, spitting out the, the, um, the spec. So uh, that's all I can really say. The other thing really, one more thing I would say is that if a consultant's not sure what to use, we should always refer them to BS 5306 Part 0. Well sadly we've run out of time, but thank you all for your contributions. It's been a really great discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the FPA's Assembly Point podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. To avoid missing out on future episodes, hit the subscribe button. To listen to previous episodes of Assembly Point or for more guidance and resources on reducing the risks of fire, please visit thefpa.co.uk.